If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Joining us now is Stephen Quay. Uh, Dr. Quay, welcome back. Well, thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. We're seeing a lot of you uh, around talking in a way in which we can all understand that aren't doctors or scientists. Uh, you write uh, in your column in one of the areas with, you say, um, you say the COVID-19 has a genetic footprint that has never been observed in a natural coronavirus, but one used repeatedly by gain-of-function researchers supercharging viruses. You still hold to that, I imagine. Can you expand on it? Well, sure, I can. I mean, basically, the two rare events happened simultaneously in this thing called the furin site, which is an, an activation. It's, it's basically the spring, like in the, in the jack-in-the-box, that allows the virus to pop up and inject your cells with, with RNA. So first, the presence of a furin site, regardless of how it's created, is not never been seen in this class of viruses. And then when you look at the letters that are used in this furin site, they use, they use letters that are never used by coronaviruses anywhere. So basically, you have you have a phrase that, that cannot be spoken in a language that's never used. Yes, for civilians like me. Uh, I'm reading that, that article from Vanity Fair, and to try to make it as simple as possible, they say that in writing up what happened in, uh, in Wuhan and spread around the globe, they say this Vanity Fair story says they were searching for people's explanation about what happened. And one scientist says they were searching for publicly available library of genetic sequences. Several teams, including a group of drastic researchers, realized, and here's the symbol, RATG13, appeared identical to RABTCOV4991, the virus from the cave where the miners fell ill in 2012. Now, for scientists, when they see the second one, they say this is the virus from that cave. But what if you didn't write that? What if you wrote something different? You wouldn't see the you wouldn't see the link. Well, as July as in July as questions mounted, Shi uh, Zengali told Science Magazine that her lab had renamed the sample for clarity. For clarity? Are you kidding me? But the skeptics like me, the renaming exercise looked like an effort to hide the sample's connection to that mine that would have drawn everything back to the lab, not the wet market. Can you unwind that uh, this hypothesis? Well, I can, I can, uh, Brian. And it's, we're talking about a particular paper she wrote in February that has been viewed over a million times. So it's the the foundation of the entire thing we understand about about uh, SARS-CoV-2. And she makes two misrepresentations in the same paper. So you've hit on the first one, which is. Um, Five or six years ago, she was in a cave, in a mine, excuse me, where six miners had been working. All six of them got very sick. Three of them actually died after months and months in the hospital. And, and, and people got master's degrees and graduate degrees studying these patients, and they had a coronavirus. So, so she was talking about that, those viruses, calling them 4991 for about 
you know, five years. And then suddenly in this paper, she uses a completely different naming system she's never used before for the same virus. And it took it took the, the drastic group, which I am in and out of at times, to, to identify um, that that was the case. But the other more telling, the more telling thing, Brian, is there has never been a furin site in this class of coronaviruses. So she publishes the sequence of this virus, but she stops six letters before the furin cleavage site. She, she doesn't tell the world that she's the first to have discovered this furin cleavage site, which, you know, if you're an innocent virologist, this is, this is really cool. Two weeks later, a Canadian French team said, okay, we, we, we see this fear and cleavage site, and they used the phrase, this probably causes a gain of function in what this virus will do in humans. So, you know, there's probably some deep psychology there, what you wouldn't want to show you, you know, the thing that you created. But it's quite remarkable that she stopped six letters out of 30,000 before, before telling the world about what she had put in the virus. So, you know, if, if we're watching CSI, we could all follow crime. Very few sci- you know, non-scientists and doctors like me, sometimes we get lost in these numbers and these symbols and these phrases, and the, now we all know gain of function. I couldn't have picked that out a month ago. But for people looking to put this together, we just, you know, it, we, it was frantic. Everyone's trying to survive and find out uh, how do we get a test and how do we get an effective test and how do we survive, how do we treat this? Now that we're getting on top of it in America and Israel and, and many other countries, we're looking around so. Why were we so misled? One of the people that seemed determined to mislead us was a fellow scientist named Peter Dasik, who was featured along with Jamie Metzl in a Leslie Stahl 60 Minutes interview. And she seemed skeptical, just by my view, of what he was saying. Listen to his explanation as we try to figure out why people seem to be covering up rather than finding out what this was to make sure people don't die. Listen. We met with them. We said... Do you audit the lab? And they said, annually? Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff? Yes. No but you're one was... just taking their word for it. Well, what else can we do? There's a limit to what you can do. And we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions. They weren't vetted in advance. Uh, and the answers they gave, we found to be um, believable, um, correct, and convincing. But weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? They destroyed evidence. They punished scientists who were trying to give evidence on this very question of the origin. Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin issue. No, no, I know. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Were there Chinese government minders in the room? every time you were asking questions? There were Ministry of Foreign Affairs staff in the room throughout our stay, absolutely. They were there to make sure everything went smoothly from the China side. Or to make sure they weren't telling you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You sit in a room with people who are scientists and you know what a scientific statement is and you know what a political statement is. Uh, We had no problem distinguishing between the two. Okay, I'll take the last part first. When you sit in a room with a scientist while security officials are behind them, can you uh, judge the candor of that scientist? Well, I think, uh, I think, you know, I think we're very fortunate in America to not really understand what it's like to live in a totalitarian regime. But um, I, I think it's extremely clear that when you have CCP party members, even some of the scientists at the Women's Institute are members of the party, but when they're mixed in with uh, with this 
this this curated tour, as, as Jamie calls it, which is, I think, a, wonder, a wonderful description of what went on there. Um, you, you have to know that candor is not is not going to happen. But he he was trying to tell 60 Minutes that's exactly what happened. He also rounded up those 27 scientists to sign off on the fact that this came from a bat and a wet market, not from the Wuhan lab, and published it in a journal that you guys consider prestigious, Lancet. Who were those 27, and, and why were they so sure so quickly? Well, you know, what happened was the paper got published in February. Everybody looked at it, and what it what – it, what it did, Brian, is it satisfies sort of a check-the-box for people that aren't embedded in this kind of research and thinking about it. So we are familiar with, with, with this, these things coming out of wet markets. So there's a wet market involved. You see this letter, and you just write it off. So probably 80% of scientists have decided not to dig into it like I did. Just, you know, that was enough for them. We now know through Freedom of Information's uh, request that, in fact, that letter was highly, highly orchestrated by Peter Dasak himself, and in fact, in fact, suggesting who should be on it, who shouldn't be on it. Dr. Ralph Barrick, who's a very prominent synthetic biologist who, who makes viruses up, you know, in the lab completely, they, they decided for him not to be on the letter because that that might, you know, remind people of, of what you can do in a lab with a virus. So, so the whole thing was a charade. Uh, and that's and that's really unfortunate because uh, it just it undergrades credibility from the beginning. And it, and it heightened your interest in getting the answers. What's been the response to your column? Well, it's been I think it's been I think it's been favorable. I actually had the opportunity to to do a forty minute formal debate. So I've got a I got a, a an eighth grade daughter that's you know doing debate in her school system. And so I was I, you know she was telling me what's gonna happen and what we did. So the, you know I was I was the pro with respect to a lab origin and this professor from Columbia was was the con. But I, I think it I think it was very clear in that process because you're you're you really have to focus down that in three minutes I can tell you why this couldn't have possibly come from nature. <laughs> and so um I, I don't know. It's 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 kind of frustrating because I think the most important thing is that people understand this. Yes. I think then we should turn to, well, how do we never have this happen again, for gosh sakes? They lied last and, time. And They're going to lie there. again, uh, uh, Dr. Quay. And that's what's so frustrating is we could have stopped it, according to scientists like you, if we knew what was going to hit us. We did not know there was asymptomatic spread, and we did not know if it would spread for human-to-human contact. In fact, according to Josh Rogan's book, uh, President Xi lied to Donald Trump directly. He says it's going away in the spring. We're not. Don't be worried about this. So you have certain relationships, and there's certain things in, in the international community you consider norms. Then you have Condoleezza Rice goes, they lied about SARS and all their other stuff. We should have known they were going to lie about this. Now, where do you stand on the need for gain-of-function research? Yeah. So I, in, in last year, I've looked at it very carefully. It's been around about 20 years. I think I've, I've looked at every significant paper in that. And I have to say, when I stand back and say, okay, they did this work, they risk doing, you know, they risk a laboratory escape for every one of these studies for 20 years. What was the benefit? And I have not seen what I would describe as a benefit with respect to either a vaccine or a therapeutic. So, so um, I, you know, I, I'm happy to have a debate and let them try one more time to tell me why why they think they should do it. But well, I, I'm with I, you. I'm pretty, pretty heavily on the side. It's not necessary. Right. And you believe it did come from a, the, the lab and you back it up with your experience and with your research. I, so next time Dr. Anthony Fauci says he's not for gain of function research, I think we all should have this clip available from 2012. Cut 31. If you look at basic research as we've approached it, integral to that study has always been 
the issue of gain-of-function research. There are a few ways to look at gain-of-function research. There's the naturally occurring mutations which naturally give gain-of-function, and investigators study these effects on the phenotypes of interest. Does this mutation make something more transmissible, more pathogenic, or adapt to host better? Or what historically investigators have done is to actually create gain of function by making mutations, passage adaptation, or other newer genetic techniques such as reverse genetics and genetic reassortment. So he's for it, uh, and he was for it in the past, but he says we weren't, they weren't doing it there because they told him he, they weren't, and he says we're not doing it here. So final thought, Dr. Quay? Well, I mean, I think uh, I, I think there's, there's, there's just no question that the grant requests involve gain of function of the research that that we know about that has been done there uh, was was gain of function research in the past. There's another thing that 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 was going on here that people don't really focus on is so they were going into bat caves in the middle of nowhere in China where the you know the population is two or three people per kilometer squared, and they're bringing them back to Wuhan, 11 million people with a subway system that you can go from the Wuhan Institute to New York City without ever going outside because the same subway station goes to the airport. I call that gain of opportunity. And, and, and so collecting viruses out in the wild and bringing them back to the lab is a really dangerous thing. And I have done an analysis. A lot of these gain of function are putting 1,000 to 2,000 years of evolution into a virus in an afternoon. So, you know, it's one thing to say you're going to get ahead of nature, but my goodness, we don't have to get ahead of nature for two millenniums because those kind of things never happen. Dr. Stephen Quaid, thanks for making it sound reasonable and understandable. Appreciate your column, too. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You go. Uh, pick up his book, uh, Stay Safe, A Physician's Guide to Surviving the Coronavirus. Brian Kilmeade Show. Your call's next, and Seth Barron inside New York. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.